0: Something that all human beings and all human cultures have in common is that we attempt to make sense of life through stories, and the meaning of any event in life depends on the larger story in which those events happen. The philosopher Alistair McIntyre invites us to consider this example. imagine you're waiting at a bus stop, and a man standing nearby says out of nowhere, that the Latin name for the common wild duck is histrionicus, histrionicus. (laughs) What does that mean? Well, you might understand what the sentence means, but what does the event mean? Why did he say it? We're going to try to make sense of that through story. Perhaps the story is that he is coming from a recent appointment with his psychotherapist who encouraged him to break through his shyness by initiating conversations with strangers. Well, what do I talk about? Talk about what you know. This guy knows ducks. <laughs> or maybe this is a case of mistaken identity. That the day before he was at the library having this conversation on this very subject, and you happen to look exactly like the person he was having a conversation with, and he's just continuing the conversation. Or maybe he's a foreign spy. And he has just uttered the the code, the phrase by which he was to identify himself to his contacts. (laughs) Now, again, what this story means, what, what this event means, depends upon which one of those stories is true. Now, with that in mind, there are certain features that we share as humans as well. You can call them instincts. You can call them senses. You can even call them Desires and longings, and all of them point to the fact that we feel that things in this world and in this life are not as they ought to be. We all have that sense. But what is the story that makes sense out of those instincts? Well, I would propose to you today that not only is it that things are not as they ought to be, I would also say that things are not as they once were. We can call these senses the ghosts of Eden, and all of us today are haunted by the ghosts of Eden. And so today we're going to consider a number of these, and we're going to do so as we look at Acts chapter 28. Over the past few weeks, we've joined Paul on his voyage as he is headed to Rome to appear before the emperor to give testimony. But in recent weeks, we've seen Paul go through a storm and even a shipwreck. And today in Acts 28, we read what happens immediately after that shipwreck. And so we'll read a portion, and then we'll consider and um, explore some ideas. So Acts 28, starting in verse 1. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us because it was raining and cold, Paul gathered a pall of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself onto his hand. When the islanders saw that the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live." The word that Luke uses here to describe the inhabitants of Malta is barbaroi. It's where we get the word barbarian. However, you can clearly see that the conduct of these people was not what we would consider barbaric. So no, they are not barbarians. This word simply means people who don't speak Greek. But they treated, according to Luke, these stranded sailors with unusual kindness. Some scholars estimate that this was around the time of November, and that this portion of the world, it would have been a high of 60 degrees. So You can imagine how cold the water would have been. So they're seeking to keep them warm. Now, if we had access to these islanders, we can ask them, why bother showing kindness? Why not leave these men to themselves? We can imagine that they would say, well, it's because it was the right thing to do, and we would agree with them. But... Where do we, as humans, get this idea of the right thing to do? According to some, the story is that we as humans develop the sense of the right thing to do through natural means, through evolution, through natural selection. And natural selection, of course, involves only these adaptations that are concerned with survival so that an organism can pass on its genetic code to the next generation. So according to this view, Something like virtue, the sense of the right thing to do, or morality is simply a survival trait, an adaptation, something like camouflage, or a prehensile tail, or opposable thumbs, but nothing more. Because natural selection is only concerned with survival traits, but not truth. The naturalists E.O. Wilson and Michael Ruse write together that our sense of ethics is an illusion, fobbed off on our... Fobbed off on us by our genetics to get us to cooperate. And to be consistent with this view, that means that good and evil are not real, but it's an illusion for our survival. But can you really believe that? And can you live consistently with that? I, I, I would argue that even the most consistent naturalists, when they hear about the most recent mass shooting, They're not sitting there thinking to themselves, now I know my instincts tell me to be outraged and disgusted by this, but that's just natural selection playing on my genes like a fiddle. So maybe I shouldn't be so concerned with that. It also doesn't take into account that if virtue is only about survival, if it's only a survival trait, how do you explain virtuous acts that are self-sacrificial? The soldier who dives on a grenade in order to save the rest of his company. Did that sense of virtue help him to survive? Is he passing on his genetic code? And on the other side of it, sometimes being greedy and hoarding resources for yourself and your group actually improve your prospect for survival. So I'm not sure that this story is the most compelling one. There are others who would tell you that the story is that, well, there is no story, and that. You know, there's no such thing as objective right or wrong or a sense of the right thing to do, but each culture and each individual needs to decide what is right or wrong for themselves. Well, if you ever hear that from someone, steal their iPhone. <laughs> steal their iPhone and tell them, like, well, where I, where I grew up, it's, there's nothing wrong with <laughs> stealing an iPhone. That's what our culture dictated for ourselves. And, and see how that goes. See if they're consistent with that view. That's probably far enough down the philosophical rabbit hole, wouldn't you say? I would propose I would propose that this sense of the right thing to do, this sense of morality is a whisper deep within our hearts that we were made in the image of God and that human beings have intrinsic value and we are to treat each other accordingly, that through common grace God has given us a conscience. This is how Paul puts it in um, Romans chapter 2. He writes in verse 14 even, or indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. The people of Malta did not receive stone tablets that say, whenever someone washes up to your shores, be sure to treat them with unusual kindness. No, but that was written upon their hearts and given by God. Now, of course, this is not to say that humans are only virtuous. This is not to, deprive what the, to, to deny what the Bible says about our depravity. Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not one, all have turned away. We're really a mixed bag. Blaise Pascal says that humanity is a contradiction, a freak, a chimera, both the glory and the refuse of the universe. I mean, just ask anyone, Ask anyone you know, are you as morally good as you ought to be or even as you want to be? And anyone who is not a deluded narcissist will tell you, no, I'm not as good as I ought to be, and I know that. Uh, Francis Schaefer gives an illustration based on Romans chapter 2. He says, imagine someone standing before God in this kind of judgment scene, and they say to God, Lord, I didn't have the Ten Commandments, and I didn't have the Scriptures. You can't judge me according to what I didn't know. And God says, fair enough. And suddenly emerges from around the neck of this person a once invisible recording device. And God says, we're going to play back the recording of your life, and we're going to listen to every time you said the phrase, you ought and you ought not. You should And you should not. Every time you said the words, this is right and this is wrong. And we're going to see if you lived up to your own standards. You see, we don't live up to God's standards. We don't even live up to our own standards. And the problem is, so the problem is we have this sense of virtue. We know what is right, but we don't do it. In fact, we can't. We are incapable of being perfectly virtuous all the time. And although we distract ourselves from this and we tell ourselves phrases like nobody's perfect, and although that is true, it still gnaws at us and eats away at us that we're not consistent. You know, we do something and and later we reflect upon it we're thinking, where did that come from? What's wrong with me? Is there a solution to this problem? Is there any story that helps us make sense of this or can give us any hope? Well, I'll get to that. But under this umbrella and connected to the ideas of virtue and goodness are the ideas of fairness and justice. These people of Malta notice that Paul is bitten by this viper and they conclude, like, well, he must be a murderer. You know, justice has had her way. Justice here, they're talking about a goddess named Justice. And so it seems that the people of Malta were living under this assumption that so many people have that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And many people think this. Even the disciples themselves were under this assumption at one time as they noticed a blind man and they asked Jesus, Is this man blind because of his own sin or because of the sin of his parents? And the way Jesus answers implies that in a fallen world, it's not that simple. We don't always see a sense of fairness played out. I mean, innocent children die in poverty while cruel dictators live to their 90s. Life doesn't feel fair. But we long for justice, and many people in our culture long for justice. We cry out for justice, and we champion human rights, and that's a good thing. But for many people in our culture, how do they, or what is the grounding story for human rights? Where do they get this idea? You know, how how can we understand what injustice is and justice is? Well, most people take for granted the fact that throughout history, most cultures and most people in history have not assumed such a thing as universal human rights. And it's a relatively novel idea. And it's come about here in the West because of the influence of the Judeo-Christian worldview. Now, I know that sounds like a piece of propaganda coming from the lips of a Christian, but even secular scholars will tell you. Philosophers such as Luke Ferry and Jürgen Habermas, a historian named Tom Holland, not the actor who played Spider-Man, but a British historian named Tom Holland, they'll all tell you and others that this sense of human rights that we have in the West didn't come from the Greeks, it didn't come from the Enlightenment, it came from the Judeo-Christian worldview. So anyone who today who champions human rights, they do so because they grew up with the privilege of living in a culture influenced by the Judeo-Christian view of things. But so we, we cry out for justice, but I think at the same time we have a sense that we'll never in this world experience perfect justice. No matter how many laws we put in place, no matter how many rules, no matter how many educational programs we, we put in place, you know, no matter how big the government gets, which I don't think is a good idea anyway. Um, we're never going to have perfect justice. Why? I think this story illustrates that. There's a story of a man who walks into an old antique shop. And he goes to the back of the shop, and and there's so much, it almost feels like clutter. There's just so much stuff in this. And he kind of digs through all of it, and he finds a lamp, the kind of lamp that you rub. And so he rubs the lamp, and out pops a genie. And the genie says, well, you know how things go, three wishes. And the man offers the, you know, the typical beauty pageant answer and wishes for world peace. So the genie says, granted, world peace. There you have it. So the man goes to pay for the lamp, but he noticed that the clerk is missing. And then he goes outside to a once crowded street and notices that everyone is gone. The point of the story is just like World peace. We'll never have perfect justice as long as there are fallen creatures in this world. But we long for it. The longing for justice is really the longing for everything to be set right. But is there a story that gives us hope that everything will be set right? I'll get to that. But for the next Ghost of Eden, we continue our reading in verse 5 this is after paul is you know bitten but paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects the people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him they changed their minds and said that he was a god it seems clear by now that God intends for Paul to get to Rome to stand before the emperor because he's cleared every obstacle in his way. God has allowed Paul to survive an assassination conspiracy and to survive this storm and this shipwreck, and now he's survived this alleged you know, bite from this viper. God intends for Paul to get where he's going. But, um, but then we notice the people of Malta. This is so funny. <laughs> like... They go from thinking he's a murderer to not long after saying he's a god. I mean, that escalated quickly. I mean, this is, the, this is the reverse of what happened in Acts chapter 14 at Lystra. At Lystra, Paul and Barnabas heal a man, and the people at Lystra say, the gods have visited us. It's Zeus and it's Hermes. But Paul and Barnabas are distressed by this. They tear their clothes, saying, no, it's not like that. And not long after this, they're taking Paul out and they're stoning him. So they go from thinking that Paul is a god to thinking that he is a wrongdoer worthy of death. But here at Malta, they thinking that Paul is a wrongdoer worthy of death to thinking that he's a god. Now this serves as a reminder for us to not base our sense of identity on the opinions of other people. Because people are fickle. There's no firm foundation, they'll, they'll change on you on a, like, on, a, on a dime. But it also reminds us of the human proclivity to quickly deify things. To deify things. I think what this really shows is our sense and our longing for transcendence. Our sense and our longing for something that is beyond this present world. We can feel it, we can, we can sense it, and we reach out for it, we, we long for it. And I think that explains why a vast majority of humanity throughout history has been religious, telling stories of their gods and their heroes. It's why we create statues with the inscription to the unknown God. We sense that it's there, but yet we feel like we're still missing something. John Calvin calls this the census divinitatis. And um, this relates to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Paul goes on to say that although they knew God, they did not honor God nor give thanks to him. And it talks about how people suppress the truth. It's like having a GPS that gives you the right and correct directions to where you want to go, but you ignore them going your own way and you end up lost. But then you have this nagging sense of recalculating, 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 something pointing you back to the right path, and you have the options of going that way or ignoring it and suppressing the truth. I think even non-religious people have this sense of God, they'll use language like, I think the universe is telling me something. The universe is telling you something. I'm curious about this you know, does does the universe have a plan? Does the universe have a purpose? Does the universe care about you? Does it care enough to communicate with you? Is the universe personal? I think for some people, it's simply that they just don't want to use the word for God, so they're just substituting the next biggest thing that they can think of. But speaking of the universe, I wonder if... Some of us are familiar with the images floating around the internet from re- recently released from NASA from the James Webb Telescope. I mean, these amazing images that make vast galaxies look like neighborhoods. And there's something in us that is in awe of that, and it almost kind of hints at transcendence. And yet, that's stuff from our own neighborhood. This is our world, this is our observable cosmos, but it still kind of points outwards at the same time. I wonder if the, our sense of transcendence, something beyond what we know, beyond this world, is illustrated through the stories we tell. There's this you know, little um, production company called Marvel. And they've made a scant $25 billion over the last little more than a decade, telling stories about heroes that seem like beyond human. And they've got that way either through a science experiment gone wrong or Perhaps right, depending on how you look at it. Or some of these heroes are actual hammer-wielding deities with huge biceps, right? And, and we think of this and we're like, it would be so cool if we could be close to that kind of awesome. Close to that kind of power. Close to that kind of bravery and heroism. It's why we tell the stories of, of, of rescue and the longing, for, the longing for rescue and the longing for things to be set right. It's because we have a sense that maybe that's the story we're living in. I wonder if we have a sense that there are indeed other worlds out there, other dimensions. And perhaps maybe there are evil creatures from these other dimensions that come and invade and wreak havoc in our world. And so we think, wouldn't it be cool if we had a friend who, on the outside, seemed vulnerable but had this immense power and was able to rescue us and protect us from these evil creatures. Now, did I just describe the Bible, or did I describe Stranger Things? Where our contribution to fighting evil is playing Metallica solos on a warlock guitar. I mean, poor Eddie. I also wonder if we remember the movie Avatar. Do you remember that from 2009? It was like at one time it was the top-grossing film of all time, making over a billion dollars. And they've actually made a sequel of it that's coming out later this year. It only took them 13 years. But uh, the premise of Avatar, the plot is essentially "Dances with Wolves," except with you know blue giant cat people on another fictitious planet called Pandora. And in 2010, there was an online article released by CNN called. Um, uh, audience ex- audiences experience the Avatar blues. And so many people reported that after seeing this movie, experiencing these, this deep sense of depression. But not because the story in of itself is sad or depressing, but what happened is these people became so captivated so immersed, so infatuated with this world that appeared to them on the screen, this world with its bioluminescent creatures and plant life, this world with these floating mountains and dragon-like creatures that you can ride, and, and so that when the movie was over, they found themselves back in this world, and this world to them, by comparison, felt gray, And some of them reported just this longing for this other kind of world. And, you know, some of them reported a deep sense of depression that made them contemplate not being part of this world anymore. And we can think to ourselves, what? Like, that's ridiculous. Like, it's just a movie. But I wonder if something was awakened in them. This sense of transcendence, this sense that home doesn't feel like home. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Home doesn't feel like home, and they didn't know what to do with it. Do we have good news for someone who would suffer something like the Avatar Blues? Perhaps that's something we should keep in mind as the sequel comes out. A famous quote by C.S. Lewis, he said, If I find in myself desires of which nothing in this world can satisfy, the logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. And indeed, we were made from this earth and for this earth, but we were not made for this earth in its present fallen condition. Is there a story that tells us we will touch that transcendence? The next ghost, we finish up in um, starting in verse 7 of 28. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and they were cured. They honored us in many ways, And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies that we needed. It's really interesting here, and I really don't have an answer for it, that Luke doesn't report whether the people of Malta believed or that there were any conversions or anything. It doesn't mention Paul saying, You've been healed in the name of Jesus, or this is a glimpse of the kingdom, or anything like that. But If we've been with Paul throughout this journey on Acts, it's almost impossible to imagine that he didn't say anything, that he allowed these people to think that this power came from him. Perhaps this is Luke simply respecting us as readers and coming to that conclusion for ourselves. Who knows? But this is reminiscent of another story that Luke tells in his gospel, in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And after that, many from that area, many from Capernaum come and they get healed. And what this points us to is this sense, this instinct, of wellness and wholeness. We were meant to be well. We were meant to be whole. And as we experience different sicknesses and illnesses, we, we experience aches and pains, and we think to ourselves, "It's not supposed to be like this." So we long for wholeness. And I think, you know who I think knows this? I think. Uh, advertisers, the people who write the commercials. That's what they're selling. They're creating this felt need to where you you will now believe that their product is the missing piece of the puzzle to complete your life. This is especially true of pharmaceutical commercials. Now I thank God for modern medicine, I thank God that many people have been helped with uh, medication, but I just I have to laugh at the presentation of these, uh, of these prescription drug commercials where they show an actor presumably on this medication at dinner parties with their friends just laughing it up, or they're, they're at barbecues or, or pool parties, and they're just living it up on the upper end of the suburbs, and everything's perfect, and they show this kind of holistic just, this whole view of life. While the narrator lists all the potential side effects—nausea, <laughs> vomiting, suicidal thoughts, and depression—just, just briefly, just listens, glaze over it. But just get back to the person living it up, living their life. There's a, there's a drug for um, it, it treats plaque psoriasis, a, a skin condition, and, and their slogan, their their little jingle. Maybe you've heard it. It's nothing is everything. You heard this one. Nothing is everything. I think what they intend is that when you notice nothing on your skin in terms of plaque psoriasis, well, that's everything. You're complete. Now, I suppose even the advertisers advertisers themselves know that this is hyperbole, but I wonder if we begin to believe that. You know, if only I can solve this one portion of my life, if only I get over this one problem, then then that's wholeness, that's complete. My life would be perfect from then on. We long for physical wholeness as is depicted in this passage, but we also long for mental and spiritual wholeness as well. And whenever the disciples or, or Paul or especially Jesus heals somebody, it's always offering a glimpse of the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like when God rules, that what is broken is whole once again. Paul writes in a famous chapter, Romans chapter 8, starting at 22, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly, as we eagerly await the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Right now, in this present world, we long to be whole, we ache, and we groan. Let's take a step back and consider all of these ghosts, all of these senses that things are not as they ought to be. What is the story that not only tells us that things are not as they ought to be, things are also not what they once were, but also that things are not also what they one day will be? Is there a story like that? There is. Surprise, surprise, it's the gospel. How does the gospel speak to each of these longings? Well, when it comes to our sense of virtue, this sense that We know what the right thing is, but we feel incapable of perfectly being virtuous. What does the gospel say to that? The gospel says that you will not solve that longing through behavior change, through your own willpower. If you try it that way, you will fail. What you need are new affections, new desires, a whole new heart. Because the heart drives those things. Out of the overflow of the heart, the man lives. You need a new heart. And that is what the gospel offers. The gospel doesn't offer you new rules to live by. It says you need to be born again. And just as you're coming into this world through your first birth, that had nothing to do with your effort. And in the same way, being born again is not about your effort. It's all by grace. And that grace is available to you even as you fail. But the gospel is that God has begun a process to make you a virtuous person, to conform you to the image of Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. I think of a quote by John Newton. John Newton at one time was an English slave trader who was converted and became an abolitionist. He would later go on to write one of the most well-known hymns of the last 300 years, Amazing Grace. Grace. He said this, he said, I am not what I ought to be, and I am not what I want to be, and I am not what I will be in another life, but I'm also not what I once was, but by the grace of God, I am what I am today. What about this? longing for justice, this longing for everything to be set right. What does the gospel say? Well, when Paul was bitten by this viper, the people of Malta said, well, justice has been served. He's going to die. This man must be a murderer. The irony is, is that they actually weren't too far off. Right? Yeah. Acts says in, or Paul says in Acts 22, I persecuted the church to the point of death, throwing men and women into prison. We read out how Paul breathes out murderous threats against the church, and we see Paul giving approval and holding the coats of men who carried out a great injustice at the stoning of Stephen. So if the people of Malta could see these events, they'd, see, they'd say, oh, yeah, this makes sense. He's going to die. Justice has been served. But he didn't die. Do you know Why? Because somebody else was bitten by a snake. And here we have this other, an echo of a promise from Eden where God says to the serpent, the woman will bear a son, you will strike his heel, he will crush your head. And on the cross, as Jesus has those wounds, he's wounded by evil, he at that same moment is overcoming evil. Bearing justice in his body. Bearing the justice due for our injustice. Paul didn't have to bear that justice because Jesus did it for him. We don't have to bear justice for our sins because Jesus has already bore it. And what this means is that Jesus is going to set everything right. That justice will be served. All sins will be accounted for. They'll either be paid for by the people who committed them, or they've already been paid for on the cross, for those who, by faith, are united with him. But one way or another, justice will be served. What about for our longing and our sense of transcendence? How does the gospel speak to that? Our longing is to touch that which is beyond this world. The gospel is that that which is beyond this world has come and has touched us and has become among us and has become one of us, and he is bringing with him a new world, a world being set right, the world we have always longed for that makes the world of Avatar look like a broken, dilapidated back alley, that world and that home we've always wanted in his presence. And finally, when it comes to our longing for healing and our longing for wholeness, the gospel reminds us of a story from the book of Numbers, of Numbers of all places, right? Where God's people were being tormented by fiery serpents. An interesting phrase given our text from today. These fiery serpents were attacking God's people. They were being killed by its venom. And the solution was God said to Moses, make a bronze snake set it up on a pole and set it up so that whoever would look upon the snake would be healed. And then in the Gospels, in John chapter 3, in this conversation with Nicodemus, where Jesus talks about the need to be born again, Jesus also says, just as a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up so that all who look upon him and who believe in him will have eternal life would be healed and would be whole by his wounds we are healed in a process that begins now to be completed in the age to come but how do we know this how do we know that God will set all things right that he will bring about this new world we've longed for and that we will be healed and whole? how do we know that because he's already begun the process He's already began to set things right, and he began to do so through the resurrected body of Jesus. Jesus is the one piece of the physical universe that has already been set right, the first of many setting rights to come. But I wonder, though, as we think about this, these senses in our own lives, which one of these do you identify with the most? You know, perhaps, you know, all of them on any given day, but what about today? Which of these senses of, of virtue, this longing for virtue, the longing for transcendence, or the longing for wholeness and wellness, which one of those do you identify with most today? Perhaps that's a conversation you have at your house, church, or huddles, or the people you're having lunch with. Have that conversation and then encourage with each other with the gospel. How does the gospel speak into that longing? But I also wonder if this is you know, something where, if we become good at listening for these themes, we listen for them in the stories that we read, the, and, you know the, the shows and movies that we watch, if we listen for these themes there, but also listen for these themes in the conversations you have with your friends and your neighbors. Perhaps these can serve as on-ramps to spiritual conversations. Hey, I, I see you're somebody who cares deeply about justice, Do you have any hope that all things will be set right one day? What is that? And maybe in turn, they'll ask you, I'm so sorry to hear about the brokenness you're currently experiencing. Do you have any hope of what might make you whole? Now don't put pressure on yourself for every conversation, but when you see opportunities, scatter the seeds and trust God to ripen the fruit. But Mike's going to come now and lead us in a time of communion, of the Lord's Supper, where in our hands we hold the elements that represent the story, the story that makes sense out of our feeling that things are not as they ought to be, that things are not as they once were, but it's also the story that gives us hope that things are not as they one day will be.